And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello and thank you for joining us on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast, the second episode on this feed this week. We hope that you enjoyed our bonus show on the signing of Enzo Fernandez at Chelsea and what he could, will bring to Graham Potter's side. Make sure you check that out after you listen to this, our main episode of the week with myself, Ali Maxwell, with Liam Tharn, Michael Cox and Mark Kerry bringing out all of the big guns for a big topic. Sean Dyche in at Everton. We're going full Dyche. We had to go full Dyche this week. It's big news. And Michael, I'm interested to know what your reaction was to this appointment. Everton sacking Frank Lampard some panic stations, I think it's fair to say. Dice, the man they've turned to. Yeah, I was quite pleased. I remember doing a, a totally football show. I think it was one of the live ones at the start of this season. I said there's two out-of-work managers who every Premier League club will turn to. One is Pochettino and one is Dyche. And I said Everton were the club that they would like to think of themselves as a Pochettino club, but actually they're a Dyche club. <laughs> That's perfect. And it's, it's turned out that way. I mean, I think it was kind of inevitable. I, I find Dyche quite interesting, actually. And I was always... Um, quite intrigued to see what he would do when he turned up at another club that wasn't Burnley and in terms of how much he would evolve his style of play from what was very obviously the most old school approach in the league I think the shame is that he's turned up at a club where style isn't going to be a consideration for the rest of the season it's going to be completely back to basics it's going to be results driven football and however Everton stay up there won't be any debate about oh Dyche's football wasn't entertaining next season if they were to stay up then it would become more of an issue but I think this is probably in a way quite a comfortable job for him where he doesn't have to have any real stylistic concerns I think it is worth noting as well that Dyche hasn't actually had to do this sort of job before where he's come into a club mid-season to try and have a bit of a, a club-saving uh, short-term remit. Like he, he was at Watford, I think he was an assistant manager before he was a manager at Watford. And then at Burnley, he had a long time to kind of get his ideas across, etc. He was there, as we know, for such a long time. So it's not the same as kind of how we think of as a Sam Allardyce, a, a Neil Warnock or a, a Tony Pulis. It, it, so it'll be interesting to see how he does with with the squad in such a short space of time and also the thing with Allardyce until he went down with West Brom and Pulis as well was that they had reputations for never getting relegated and of course and of course Dyche has only been at one Premier League club and he was sacked with them really about to get relegated no he wasn't there at the end so he doesn't quite have this reputation as yeah I can come in do a job and not take you down because that's kind of how things were going with Burnley so it's a bit of an unusual one do you think he should feel aggrieved at having to firefight again. It's it's a different club and a different situation to Burnley, but essentially that's what he has to do here. I just don't really see how it was going to be any other job for him. It was either going to be a struggling Premier League club or maybe a championship club who wanted to build and go up. But just the style of football that he was kind of so unashamed of, with sticking towards. And it wasn't really any attempt to evolve it at Burnley. I mean, Pulis, even at Stoke, they did try and bring in some more technical players. Whereas at Burnley, it was just that way. And I think the way he presented himself, 
he was never going to get a, a different job to this. He, he was he was cast himself as this kind of old school football man. I don't like all that. This is the way I'm going to be playing. So, I mean, fair enough, but this is the job you're going to end up with. I've listened to him on some other podcasts and seen the coach's voice video that he did and um, just tried to sort of listen to him and see how he you know, feels about himself. And he's remarkably sort of self-aware in a sense that he's very content to be, you know, sitting in this box. And he says that he only really draws an issue when it's other managers or other coaches being like, you know, you're you're like this. But he takes the pride, as he said, in terms of the success that they had at Burnley in terms of the results, you know, the achievements in terms of uh, European football. And I think the biggest thing I would have needed now for a long time is style and identity. It's probably an overused term in a football sense. But I think if we went around this table, we might struggle collectively to say you know what does an Everton team look like or what do they do um, I know there's things that the fans are going to demand in terms of a degree of hard work however they see that to exist and you know players that want to play for a shirt but um, apart from sort of them dragging themselves out of a real mess at the tail end of last season um, and, and you know clawing out wins when they needed them um, there hasn't for a long time looked like anything long term and sustainable I think in this club or as a team mm. So they're currently second favourites for relegation uh, across the bookmakers. The odds imply that they have a bigger than 50% chance in the bookmakers' eyes of being relegated. More likely that they will than that they won't, per the bookies. Michael, do you think they are more likely to stay up now that Sean Dyche has been appointed with the remit of doing so? Does it feel like a good fit in that specific sense? Yeah, I think so. I think he's he's got a better track record than Lampard, who I don't really understand what Lampard was was bringing to Everton, really. Um, so yeah, I think the chances have have improved a little bit. And guys, looking at, at Everton in general, halfway through the season, a highly underperforming team. If I was to ask you, in which areas Everton more, most specifically need to improve, and say so you can't just say everything, uh, Liam, where would you start? Yeah, I want to bring up that old David Moyes quote at United where he lists the, t- the 10 things to improve. Oh, what? They um, need to improve yeah. on passing, crossing, yeah, that's tackling. I thought of, I think it was Gordon Strachan who was asked, uh, in which areas did you need to be better today? And he said, that big green one out there. <laughs> yeah. which <is> quite- <laughs> Very good. But, uh, no, but seriously. Um, <laughs> I, the defence has had question marks, I think, for a long time. There was a period this season, uh, eight games in, they only conceded seven goals and had statistically the best defence in the league, um, which looked quite good. But at that point, they were, their extra GA was, was quite high. It was up to about 13, I think, which was among the five worst in the league. Um, I think I remember Jordan Pickford having a couple of really good displays of mm. as he can do and does. And that's great to, to win you games. I and mean, you need that in a relegation scrap. You need your match winners at both ends. But that can't go for a 38-game season. The chances of it happening um, are very unlikely. So I, I think the back-to-basics approach is an easy way to look at it and something they need. I think their best performance in recent months was at Man City. Um Lampard, I think, ironically, was better in some of the bigger games where they could go to that back five, be quite organised. I think they had two shots and scored with one of them. The goal was remarkable from Damari Gray, but they largely didn't give up a huge ton. I think it's 1.7 XG City put up, but Everton had conceded uh, 2 XG, I think, seven times already in different games this season. So limiting a team of that attacking quality. I know you guys spoke last week about Haaland and, and City and how good they are. So, you know, in terms of opposition quality, I think it was a largely good display. And when you do keep the goals down, you keep a clean sheet or only concede one, you make it possible to go at the other end, have two shots, stick one in the top corner and get yourself a result. Can we be confident that Daesh will improve the defensive structure of Everton, will make them harder to play through, will make them defend their box better, you know, close the gaps, the spaces that there have been to play through them all season? Yeah, probably. Uh, I think the defence itself is relatively well organised. I don't think they protect their defence very well at all. 
So I think he'll he'll put a lot of emphasis on uh, the midfield four if it's going to be four, just staying really compact uh, and really narrow. Um, so yeah, I, I'd expect their defensive performance to to get better. I do think that's the main thing that they have to focus on um, because they're just conceding so many chances. Jordan Pickford's had a pretty good season, um, which kind of sums up how bad their defence has been or, or their defensive record in terms of allowing shots has been. I mean, I haven't got the numbers on it, but I'd be interested to see just how many times they have conceded first as well, because Ahmad Walid, obviously friend of the pod, did a really good piece, which basically showed how open they are when they are forced to come out having conceded. And then on the break, they just get hit so many times. So obviously you need a strong defensive structure. You need to be strong in attack as well to pose a bit of a threat. But the amount of times that they have conceded, then been forced to come out and then just been hit. Um, and I've got the numbers on that. So they've their number of direct attacks conceded is 3.3 per 90 minutes. Uh, and only Liverpool have conceded more in that time. So direct attacks being a, a proxy of counter-attacking play sort of conceded. Interesting in itself that Liverpool are the highest in the league, but for another time, um, it shows just how open they are and susceptible to counter-attacks when they're forced to come out. And obviously attack links with defence, and I'm sure we can come on to that as well, but their attacking structure just feels really quite isolated. They don't seem to be attacking as coherently, which then allows the, the pressure to come on. I did quickly dash and look at the stats. They've conceded the first goal 11 times mm. this season in Premier League games, which is just over 50% of the time. So, yeah, again, as we've spoken before, um, that happens to anyone if you're conceding the first goal a lot and forcing yourself to come back in games. And again, I think we'll touch on the lack of attacking quality or sort of very specific attacking players they've got and the struggles to generate a lot. And particularly, I think, uh, a better players maybe more in transition or in counter-attacks that don't necessarily suit a, a one-and-done approach, a bit akin to Tottenham, I suppose, in, in that regard. Would you like to reach hundreds of thousands of Athletic subscribers? <laughs> Who wouldn't? Our lot are great. They're intelligent. They have demonstrably long attention spans for all of those long reads. And that means they're almost certainly the ABC ones you're looking for. Imagine your brand front and centre on the Totally Football Show. Or Talk of the Devils. Or Football Clichés. You can advertise with us now. Our highly skilled and effortlessly charming commercial team are waiting to hear from you, whether you want a single ad on View From The Lane or full title sponsorship on our Women's World Cup show. We've got something for everyone. Contact partnerships at theathletic.com. That's partnerships at theathletic.com. It won't be threaded through. Gordon in on goal, scores for Everton. Anthony Gordon. Everton's bright young thing was bright there, all right. He stroked Everton in front of Elland Road. Mark, they, they quite notably did not sign anyone on transfer deadline day and that raised quite a few eyebrows, particularly in the context of having sold Anthony Gordon and raised around £40-45 million pounds, uh, from that sale of Gordon to Newcastle. How much of a surprise was that for you? How much were you looking at the squad thinking there's one or two key areas where they need new players, better players. Yeah, well, I suppose they didn't give themselves all that much time to be able to get someone else through the door because of the, the Anthony Gordon sale. Um, it was every club knows that they had a certain amount of money to spend. So the price of each player who they were maybe looking at as, as would have gone up. Um, so I don't think they held the strongest hand in that regard. But it's clear that they just need improvement in attacking areas. So there's no one who scored more than three league goals this season, which is just appalling form for for anyone. It's it's relegation form, which is why they're 
essentially one of the favourites to go down. So um, this is the squad that, that Deitch has now until the end of the season. So he's going to have to get a tune out of some of them, whether it is shifting. Maybe Iwobi might be someone who's versatile enough to play in um, in different areas, but there's, there's something has got to change in some way, um, in some sort of attacking structure. As you say, we'll come on to it, just how much he loves his 4-4-2. Let's go for attacking strategy to start with in possession stuff and, and recap Dyche's Burnley just remind ourselves how they went about things uh, Michael and I had a podcast episode probably two and a half years ago uh, about this with uh, Andy Jones and the thing that I remember most from that Michael was Andy talking about how both Dyche himself and therefore quite a lot of the media that covered Burnley were always quite keen to use the phrase long passes rather than long balls. There was something in the semantics of it that Dyche didn't like because it painted him a certain way. And, you know, from for his justification would have gone, these are long passes with a target with a, a reason for them rather than just aimless long balls, which is what that phrase conjures up. Yeah, I do agree there's a difference. I'm not sure the difference necessarily applies in the way that Sean Dyche, uh, Sean Dyche would like. I mean, long passes, yeah, for sure. I mean, Xavi Alonso played long passes. I don't think he played long balls. I think Burnley played a lot of long balls. I think the difference for me is, you know, long passes generally to feet or in behind and long balls to head. And when you're playing Chris Wood up front, there were a lot of balls, long balls towards his head. I mean, in theory, Dominic Calvert-Lewin is a player that could really suit Sean Dyche's side. He's obviously not that fit. I did notice on their squad list a player they, they sold earlier in the season was uh, Salomon Rondon. I can imagine him doing quite well in the Dyche side. But they just, I mean, they don't have a great squad. They, they are really lacking options. And I must say, I think the Gordon loss is really, really big. I think in a Dyche side, that it's going to be well-organised defensively, probably quite deep, probably not that focus on attacking patterns of play. Just having a player who can run with the ball 40, 50 yards and get them up the pitch. I mean, this time last year, in the run-in last year, I know his statistical output isn't great, but he was a real threat. I remember some of the big games against Manchester United, against Liverpool, they were really scared of him. And I think in itself, just a player you're scared of, I think can be a really valuable thing for a, for, you know, a struggling team. But you look at their wide options. I mean, Damari Gray, the odd moment of magic, but not a consistent performer by any means. And Dwight McNeil, who I know worked with Dush before, but, I mean, you look at his numbers last season, I think he scored zero goals and got one assist all season from about 33 starts or something. So I'm not sure that Daesh is necessarily going to get a tune out of him, to be honest. I think looking at the style, it, he's spoken quite openly, Daesh, about using a style he felt that fit the players that he had. And you look at the players that I think now have gone on from that team and are still performing up at the top level. Obviously, Chris Wood at Newcastle was being used as sort of a backup target man, but still being played, you know, very directly to. Trippier's the one and he spoke and he quite interestingly said that he felt with Trippier, if he'd have played him in a way that was uh, just sort of short passing, only making him play 10 yards, said he could land the ball anywhere on the football pitch. He felt he'd be doing him a disservice if he said, I want you to receive from your goalkeeper, just pass your centre-back. And obviously we see him now being... I know a lot from set pieces, but one of the most creative players uh, in the entire league. Nick Pope is still launching a lot of his goal kicks. All of his good work for Newcastle, largely is sweeper keeping, which he was doing at Burnley, um, is cross claiming and, and is shot stopping. And the same with Ben Mee, um, now as a centre back in a very similar, um, you know, Brentford low block, who are defending their area really well um, in a way that is probably one of the closest things stylistically to Burnley that we've seen in the Premier League in a long time. Uh, and as, as Michael mentioned with Dwight McNeil, who has played a bit more inverted, like a, a left-footed right winger at Everton, um, not put up the sort of creative numbers he did at Burnley, playing off the left as a traditional winger. So I, I think you see the um, the fallout of these players that um, haven't been as effective as they were under Daesh or still are because they're doing the same thing. 
I think as well, Everton have been playing quite a lot of long ball football this season, so it's not like they would have to change style too much. But what I found interesting was that I looked at the numbers and Everton have one of the highest shares of uh, their total passes being long ball, but they have one of the lowest field tilts, so obviously a proxy of territorial dominance. So it shows that essentially they're getting the ball long or they're hitting it long, but they're not. it's not sticking and it's not staying there. And that's what Burnley under Dyche has been kind of good at in terms of getting the ball, getting second balls, and even if it goes out for a throw, just kind of getting up the field. And it was there was definite method to the way that they would play even though it was maybe not seen to be the most aesthetically pleasing um, and they were among the, the highest in Daesh's final season for winning the ball back in the, the attacking third um, I think only I think they were fourth only behind uh, Liverpool Manchester City and Brighton so it shows again there was method to it get the ball uh, high up the field get second balls win it high and go from there so I think that's what Everton need to do essentially get the ball high up maybe play off Calvert-Lewin but make it stick because the ball keeps coming back to them at the moment in terms of the defensive structure, uh, Liam, quite often, I think in in modern football discourse, the four four two tends to come with tags like low block and uh, sitting off and inviting pressure. Uh, was that the case for Dyches Burnley, or were they a little bit more front foot out of possession than some maybe give them credit for? No, I think they had a real solid defensive structure. You look at the the seventeen eighteen season when they got into Europe and they only conceded 39 goals their XGA was was well up and it was a massive overperformance but but fair enough because I think with the squad qualities we mentioned that getting anywhere that high is going to have to be an overperformance and I think people really now once you reach a point expect you to do that every season and not just see it as the overperformance um, and it's the lowest XG Dijk records in a, in a complete season and the, I think the lowest goals tally to reach uh, a top seven finish so it's valuable. It's what uh, Everton are going to need now. I think people actually, if they watch games and look at teams when they're defending, see a lot of the top teams now do defend in a four-four-two mid-block. Um, it gives you really good structure. It often means you prevent, um, you know, being overloaded out wide. I was actually watching the Barcelona game last night, and they defended in a four-four-two mid-block mm-hmm. because then when teams try and switch play and they try and get down the flanks, because teams now are so vertically and horizontally compact that you can't go through the middle. There's just no room anymore. You try and hit the wings, it stops you getting overloaded because teams push the fullbacks on. Um, I'm not trying to suggest Chondaish is a pioneer here by any means and uh, look at the effect he's had but um, you know there's there's methods to the madness it wasn't just 10 players behind the ball do nothing uh, and he gives a great in-depth tactical breakdown of that on the coach's voice video that Mark's mentioned about mm-hmm. how he wants his two forwards you know, to alternate who's screening who's pressing it, it's a lot more tactical than people will give it credit for and that comes over years and years of implementing a system the, the, the season that we spoke to Andy about Daish's Burnley they had caught the opposition offside more than any team in the Premier League. I'm sure there's a bit of possession adjustment that comes into that because they didn't have very much of the ball, therefore more opportunities, more they're facing more attacks, more opportunities for a striker to be offside. But it felt like it fed into this feeling that when they wanted to be, and in the right scenarios, they were pretty front-footed without the ball. Yeah, I think that is true. Often their offside trap was excellent. It's funny, it's one of those things, I mean, I really like offside stats. I think playing the opposition offside is just quite cool in general. <laughs> But you can't really use them anymore when there's VAR because sometimes a flag goes up and it's not registered. Sometimes they keep the flag down, but, you know, they would have put it up. So, yeah, not to take away from uh, the, the general concept, but just mourning the death of kind of proper offside stats, really. Offside stats are cool. You won't find anyone. No, 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 no. Offsides are cool. Offsides are Offsides cool. Offsides are cool, yeah, yeah. Catching someone offside is cool. Honestly. Like a it, goal for the defenders. You know, yeah. like I, I, when I was playing centre league, I didn't play centre back that much, but when I did, just stepping forward, 
and you, you, you halt their attack, you get possession, you get the ball just by stepping forward and being well organised. I think it's brilliant. It's Would you have th- for it as well? Would you have gone oh, on absolutely. Yeah, it's yeah, better yeah. than tackling someone. <laughs> just stepping forward and playing them offside is better than tackling someone, in my opinion. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. First up for Daesh and Everton uh, is Arsenal at home, the league leaders, and then the Merseyside derby, Liverpool, away from home, second. How did Daesh tend to do relative to expectation as Burnley manager in games against the, the top teams, Michael? Okay, I almost feel like people think they were like the Stoke and, and had a real reputation for causing teams problems, or even Palace, I think, are really good at that. They didn't really, actually, and the home record wasn't great, weirdly. Um, so, yeah, not, not particularly strong in that respect, but I must say, in this particular situation, I think it's a great first couple of fixtures for Daesh because there'll be no expectation of getting results, there'll be no expectation of... Uh, attacking and dominating the game he can just purely you know focus on defensive organization and say look if we get one clean sheet from these two games we've probably done a decent job and then after that they can build an attack yeah I jumped jumped onto the opta tool that we have to look at all their sort of home wins and then that elusive sort of turf moor fortress that turns out it's not since the start of the 16-17 season uh, they had two home wins against Tottenham uh, and beat Liverpool once but besides that no other wins against the big six which is probably fine. You'd say they're free hit games for a team that's batting relegation or in, in the bottom half, um, which they were for the most part. Um, and that's not not a problem. As Michael says, then it, you know they become free hits, and um, I guess as well that they're games that the fans will then really enjoy because you get that idea of you know the new manager bounce now. Um, you've got the the team top of the league at home, the opportunity to maybe kickstart your season and maybe derail theirs. Um, it might go completely to pot in five minutes if you go one nil down um, but I think they'll be that sort of team that as we've spoken about Everton often going one nil down if you can stay in games for longer 60-70 minutes and you're not out of sight um, which they never were at City is a good example of playing a big team and doing that um, yeah I can see them getting results from games OK why don't we play our tried and tested game of good news for bad news for uh, this is when a new manager is appointed uh, take a look at the squad that they inherit and try and highlight some of those who who may fit the style or the expected style and those for whom 
Daesh's arrival may not be the best news in terms of game time or in terms of fitting uh, the profile of player that they are. Uh, I'll chuck out a name as a starter for 10 and then let's just sort of rattle through the squad here. But what about Dwight McNeil? I I've always been really interested in McNeil because, well, for a few reasons. Firstly, he started playing so much Premier League football at a very young age. There weren't, at one time, there weren't that many, uh, certainly not English under-21 players that were playing starting regularly in Premier League teams. Uh, and so McNeil was always someone that I had my eye in. Also, the fact that he played uh, as a left midfielder on his le on his stronger side, not inverted, in a 4-4-2. And again, that was kind of unusual. And so you wondered, is there something about McNeil that fits a 4-4-2 in playing left midfield? Or if he were to move, or let's say he needed to play for... England or the under-21s, as he did quite a lot, would he be played inverted off the right-hand side and what might that look like? I think it's fair to say, and we've touched on it a couple of times, McNeil at Everton and playing inverted off the right hasn't looked that natural, hasn't looked that comfortable. So do we think that Daesh coming in, someone that hopefully knows how to get the best out of him, simplify maybe his game and Everton's attack in general, could be good news for Dwight McNeil? Quite possibly. I think he's a really good ball striker. Um, I can't remember if it was in a preseason friendly or maybe on his debut, but I remember him scoring a really good goal cutting in from the right for Everton and just hasn't really done too much since. Um, his set-piece delivery has been really good. Had a quick glance at their set-piece numbers. Uh, they've ranked 12th for corners taken this season, so they're having enough. Um, they're 11th for set-piece shots, 7th for XG with 6.6 uh, uh, created from set-piece situations, but only Wolves and Brighton have scored fewer than Everton's two goals. So you know, they're maybe making chances and not scoring them. So I guess if you can just keep bolstering um, the quality that you're putting in. And I used to really enjoy Burnley's, you know, just flood the six-yard box corners where um, always swinging it in. I think we tuck off skin me just sort of crashing on top of the goalkeeper. Um, and I think it's just great because they were very predictable. Everyone knew what they were going to do. And it was, okay, you couldn't stop it anywhere. And you now look at the defenders they've got. They've got and Calvert-Lewin too. If you add him in and he's fully fit, you've got Cody, Tarkovsky, um, people to come and, you know, be those targets that... Um, those I think we can't underestimate as a part of the game to uh, to hopefully get them out of this this scrap really. I mean it was a really old side he had at Burnley. The average age was about 29 or something and really McNeil was the only player who came through and I did think, I mean I, I agree with Liam I think he's a really good crosser of the ball. I really like the way he, just the way he, yeah his technique is wonderful but I do think that being at Burnley and developing in that system it probably meant his development wasn't ideal. I just think he was asked, you know, like you and Ali, he was asked to do things that aren't really in demand at other clubs. And also you just don't get the ball in attacking situations that much if you play for a Daesh side. And I don't know, I, I, when I've watched him recently, I haven't thought he's, he's improved significantly from two or three years ago. In fact, probably regressed really in terms of his, his end product. So that could go either way. Maybe Daesh knows how to get the best out of him. But as I say earlier, his, his stats for last season zero goals and one assist. I mean, that's, that's pretty bad. And I mean, his stats across his whole season, his whole career, I should say, um, he's scored nine goals in the whole of his Premier League career, which is quite mad to think he hasn't even hit double figures yet. So uh, obviously then you look into the, the underlying numbers, maybe he's underperforming, 8.9 XG. So he's exactly where he should be. He's not actually getting into really dangerous areas. And of course that comes into the, the context of who he's playing for. But for a player who is known to be a, a good crosser of the ball, a good creative player, a good attacking player, he should be hitting sort of more numbers than, than he's done across his whole career. Well, Pickford's got a remarkable kick on him. So <laughs> presuming that, and maybe this is a dangerous assumption, but assuming that Everton will mostly launch their goal kicks rather than play out, uh, that could be something that gets the, the best out of Pickford and, and his 
remarkable length uh, with his kicks. In terms of the defenders, uh, Michael, is there is there anyone in particular out of quite a big group of centre backs, Tarkovsky and Mina, Cody, Holgate, Keane, and Godfrey? Uh, does this seem like a a good battalion of centre backs for Daesh to send into battle? Yeah, it's pretty good. Tarkovsky's the only one who's uh, ever present so far this season. So yeah, he knows exactly how to play. I think Cody uh, is pretty solid, a different type of defender, good long-range passer. I quite like Mina whenever he plays as well. I think he's a useful option. So yeah, I don't have too many doubts in, in the centre of defence. I think even at fullback, Mikhelenko, I don't know whether he'll be a, a, a Daesh kind of player. I think he's looked quite good. I imagine Seamus Coleman will kind of come back. He just seems so daish for his experience and leadership. Yeah, I, I think the the defence itself is fine. Just don't think they protect him very well. Okay, so the issue's more in the centre of the park for you? Yeah, they, again, they've got some decent players. Anana's looked good at times. Gay was really good before he went to PSG. I don't think he's been the same player since. Iwobi's done well as a number eight. But they haven't had one dedicated player to kind of screen the front of defence. I mean... It's mad to think they brought in Alan two or three years ago. He was excellent in that Napoli team that came close to winning the league. It didn't work out at all. Um, yeah, they just don't... I don't think there's a partnership there. I don't think there's one player who's just sitting in front. They just seem really, really open between the lines to me. And I think that's the first thing he'll focus on. And like I say, it's not just the central midfielders. I can imagine him being like really... like Against Liverpool or Arsenal, maybe. Just being really narrow and playing like Unana Gay, Davies... Uh, and Iwobi as like four players who've played as central midfielders do the old Tony Pulis just like completely block out the centre of the pitch because they just need to protect that zone We could expect them to look to put some dangerous deliveries into the box who are going to be the ones to do that you're looking at the fullbacks with Patterson and Coleman on the other side Mikalenko with Ruben Vinagre his uh, his sort of backup uh, and then in attacking wide areas in terms of players' natural positions, it's it's pretty thin on the ground. Um, Damari Gray and Dwight McNeil, really. I think Gray's best moments come in transition, where he's, he's often the out ball at times. Um, on Lampard, they were maybe defending in, in a back five. Sometimes it would be a five four one, or Gray might stay up and stay high in a five three two. And I think he's got he's got really good speed, um, straight line running, and and can actually strike a ball I think quite well on the run. It often seems to score quite a few screamers and not that many goals across a across a full season. Uh, I think. You know, not limiting Awobi's creativity is important. He's had five assists this season. Um, I know it's, his XA isn't you know that ridiculously high, but he's played quite a few really neat passes. Um, obviously, a player who has not played in this role for his whole career, he's been repositioned. This is great for us because we obviously noticed this at the start of the season. He's he's done quite well, but um, I'd be intrigued to see if yeah he then maybe gets pushed out a bit wider again um, by Daish and um, whether he still looks to use him in that regard. But um, there's quite a few players, I think, with decent level potential there. Onana's another one who I think is a lot better technically than he gets credit for just because he is so tall that people see his size. And um, I think he only scored his first goal I think it was earlier this month off a corner, um, but when I was watching him, you know, uh, as this move got announced, that um, particularly for for Belgian uh, for Belgium at youth level, he played some really good three balls, um, quite a neat technician. So I, I agree, with Michael. I th- could quite easily see him sort of ditching the the wide players and going for a real sort of almost box midfield that flattens out with a uh, you know lots more century minded players. Love it. Uh, and up top. You'd be hard pressed to see why he wouldn't go for Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Um, I think given his you know 
his goal scoring record I know his, his big one has been injuries and keeping him fit but um, he's the closest thing I think there to a guarantee of goals I'm not quite sure how Morpé would fit he never really played in a, in a front two at Brighton um, when he did it was often in a real split strikers formation where he and Danny Welbert played really wide and there were players running through the middle they also appreciate that's a very different style of what Potter wanted to what you know Dyche's remit is going to be and what he will likely do um, but as long as he's got a runner in behind Morpé tends to do okay it's when he's on his own or he's got more players between the lines and the defence isn't getting pinned and pushed back he likes to drop into feet a lot more so maybe he could play off of Calvert-Lewin but I can't see him being that you know player to run onto the flick-ons a la Barnes or Vidra to a Chris Wood type player with that in mind could it be that Gray is that person to to use his energy for everything that you said Liam to be that person to run off Calvert-Lewin and actually stretch his legs because we know it's it's his strength maybe that could be a good idea I mean as you say Calvert-Lewin is is the person most likely but he does have his injury issues and we can't ignore that and Dyche speaks a lot in all those videos we've spoken about all of his interviews and podcasts etc about making sure that he has a really really fit team and I know that every manager looks to do that but he speaks a lot about yardages and making sure that you're getting into the right position at the right time and asking a lot of Cavalloon off the ball in a short space of time if he's obviously going to have to change things very very quickly might be just a little bit too much for him given that he needs his, his side to, to run as much as possible who knows whether he'll be up to the task it's worth pointing out I mean we're kind of going through this squad and thinking they really don't have many attacking options I think in the last two years I'm right in saying that Everton have sold or released or let go of Richarlison Anthony Gordon James Rodriguez Bernard Josh King Solomon Rondon Deli Alley. Theo Walcott, Gilfie Sigurdsson. Now, there's a lot of creative players, a lot of players who can run with the ball, a lot of players who can score goals. I'm not saying they would all be perfect in this side. I mean, a couple of them clearly, you know, their best days are long gone. But, I mean, that's they've lost a lot of players who at one point were really good and now they're left with, with respect, like Dwight McNeil, Damari Gray, players who haven't done it consistently in the Premier League at any point in their career. I mean, I, it's just not a great squad. You think of the name Everton and you think, well, they're going to have players who, you know, the new manager just needs to get up to speed. But I just don't think they have very good players, really. I mean, it's very notable when you when you look at the squad and their simple stats like minutes played and goals this season. Damari Gray with the, the most goals with five. Then Gordon, who now plays for Newcastle United with three. Uh, and then McNeil and Cody have two each you know, in terms of out-and-out strikers. Well, it's really only Calvert-Lewin who has played... 700 minutes uh, Mopai who's played 833 minutes clearly the very top end of the pitch has been a huge issue for them which will be solved if Calvert-Lewin is fit and can stay fit and can stay robust now the wild card here is Ellis Sims who is now their third choice senior striker for a team that may be playing two up top or something similar so I wonder if we, we might see a little more of Ellis Sims certainly if Calvert-Lewin picks up an injury and Daesh wants size and height up front Sims will be providing that um, and, and how disruptive he can be much more than, than Mopai if we're talking about long passes I've seen him quite a lot in the EFL where I've really enjoyed watching his development he had a particularly exciting loan spell at Blackpool uh, that was in League One so the third tier um, now not last season but the one before but was absolutely a key reason why they they flew up the table into the playoffs and then helped them win scored some big goals in the playoffs uh, and then particularly uh, this season at Sunderland where he picked up a few injuries and wasn't a consistent starter um, but when he did play again for the most part he was impressive in his all-round game he's tall he's mobile he's pretty good at, at disrupting centre halves and he is pretty happy running the channels as well he's not the 
tightest technically would probably be the way that I would sum him up. He's not someone with incredible close control. I think his link play is is not yet at the very, very top level. But, you know, at the very least, I could see him having a few interesting moments if he gets if he gets a chance. Do you think that as wonderful as it would be as a sort of a story in a way to end the season and turn the team's fortune around that that probably exemplifies the problem and really underlines it that you might need to be hinging your survival hopes or you know needing attacking quality from these players who ideally in, in an ideal development sense and you look at other clubs in, in the league that are doing that a lot better if you bring these players in when they're ripe and ready mm. and then you can drip feed them in and maybe they play three or four games then they come and you know spend more time in the 21s or they go out on loan again rather than being like no we need you now for this is like that that's not ideal. yeah I, I definitely I was going to say he, I'm not sitting here and saying he is Premier League ready striker that's the problem is I, I would have thought for his development you know for a for a, a smooth and steady development pathway spending the second half of the season at Sunderland would have been possibly better for him um, both in terms of his minutes but also just psychologically um, without the pressures and the rigours of a Premier League relegation battle could have been a better option for him but uh, nothing simple is it in life and certainly not at Everton um, can we look just into the future with a few hypotheticals just to finish us off let's say that Daesh is able to keep Everton up and, and it is a big task um, do we have any ideas of how if we if we accept that he's firefighting and therefore he probably isn't going to try anything particularly new or different from what we expected at Burnley do we have any ideas of how he might look to, to progress and tweak things next season with broadly this squad and, and a few additions I think they need to recruit right is from what we've all been saying um, Mark and I were having a discussion I think it was last week in the office about saying that relegation might be a necessity for Everton in, in a degree of I, I know that um, their big their big tag really is that they, they've been this uh, ever present team um, and that it's I appreciate a really scary thing and a lot of unknowns with it and what we're saying is a to sort of force you to reset and go okay this thing's happened now there is a chance to rebuild we're now seeing it with Burnley doing it in a different way um, and it's presumably a lot more possible with with parachute payments and stuff that or money that as the fallout comes um, but regardless they're going to need some form of recruitment if it was quite aligned to when Deitch left Burning as Cox said they got progressively older like noticeably older mm. um, there was one window where they only bought Dale Stevens for I think three quarters uh, of a million which and Sean Dyche admitted this, he said, with no disrespect, that isn't enough for a functioning Premier League team to, <laughs> to spend in one window. Makes me think of the, the summer before Roman Abramovich bought Chelsea. They made one signing and it was Enrique De Lucas. <laughs> wow. That was the, another version of that. Um, so recruitment, essentially, is what we're talking about heavily here. And that, in theory, wouldn't be massively Dyche's remit anyway. Yeah, but good recruitment. Because the whole thing we said for Everton is they've kept buying players or loaning players and bought players that are maybe too old or that have been good and that don't fit currently or that are past their peak um, or spending too much on players and, and wasting money in effect and I guess you're now seeing the repercussions of that when they haven't got the money to spend and now they're also trying to build a new stadium which I imagine convolutes that a hell of a lot more because no one wants that stadium in the championship um, because it's just too big for that sort of league so um, it, it's very desperate um, and I'm very grateful now to not be an Everton fan and, and be emotionally involved in this because it looks like a real war of things if you're trying to do good long-term sustainable things but you need to avoid this real big thing that's staring you in the face and from you know the pitch invasion everything you know last last summer um, and their big thing was like not again this will never happen again and then it didn't feel like they really took any steps to actually address that I think you caveated it right Liam in terms of recruitment is that it, it being correct recruitment because they have spent a lot of money 
and you know Michael's listed a lot of players that they've let go as well but they have it's not like they've not spent money so it'll be a slightly different remit if they're allowed to spend money because Taish isn't kind of used to that he's used to normally having a really small squad and not spending much money but I think with Everton I think it's quite a, a, a useful match a very uh, a sort of match made in heaven if you want to say it like that because Everton are as much as it's a cliche they are a side who are kind of known historically to be very aggressive very front foot making it hard to play against will get into wide areas and cross it in, in terms of if you want to talk about their identity across a number of decades and that does kind of fit in with everything that we've been speaking about about Daesh so I do think that if they just want to be that and that alone at least in the short term and they can build from there I think it it really fits into their identity or the things that you spoke about before Liam so they've tried to play kind of better football with a, a Komen and a, a Silver in the past but this actually might just be the best thing for them to just have a really strong structure and go from there and even this season as bad as they've been they've lost more times uh, against teams in the bottom half than the top half they're actually not ever that bad at going against a big team uh, even Chelsea I think on the opening day I believe they only lost 1-0 and I think it was a Jorginho penalty um, but we're not really it was, I remember watching thinking this is a really boring game but they probably need more of those where they are tight things are organised that you know, one of the big criticisms like of Leeds at times or Leeds fans will sort of say to me is like they're too entertaining to watch mm. that for your team that means that it's too too much like a basketball game too much transition too many big chances and you want that that order that control um, and the fact that obviously when you're not getting the points against teams around you it's going to push you further down but then when they do go to a team that wants a lot of possession and they can sit back um, that to me suggests that there's good foundations for Daesh to build off of and maybe if he can just strengthen that and build them and improve it more they might have more of a fighting chance basically strikes me that albeit we're a tactics podcast, you know, the, the question about Everton tactics under Sean Dyche is, is probably one for next season if we're talking about a really interesting topic and a, and a, a development uh, of the club's tactical identity. Michael, the bottom line that I'm getting from you guys is most seriously in the short term, this is about things like standards, <laughs> things like organisation and, dare I say it, mentality as well. Yeah, probably. I mean, I think, uh, I don't think they can afford to go down with a new stadium, but if they do, at least they'll have probably at some point a season where they're just winning the majority of games. I think there's a real despondency and a kind of depression amongst the fan base. We're just constantly watching quite bad football and, and not winning games. But I'll be honest, I think they're in big trouble. I, I, ju I don't think the squad is very good. They've got a manager who's only proven himself at one club and eventually he was probably going to take them down. The stadium's a, a big issue. The ownership is an issue. The supporters, to be fair, did a great job last season in, in helping them to get over the line, but I'm not sure whether they are ready to go again. There's, there's not much for them to believe in. Yeah, I, I think they're in big trouble, actually. The, the more I researched for this pod, the more I was uh, struggling to make a case from here. I mean, I think the, the appointment of Daesh is better than having Lampard in charge, but they don't have much going for them, Everton. I think I end the podcast feeling more tense than I did before we started. Uh, that's been Sean Dyche appointed at Everton with the basic remit of keeping them in the Premier League. And um, We've chatted through how he may go about doing that. It's been fascinating. A huge thank you to, to Michael, Mark and Liam for all the work that they've put in on this uh, and in their insight. I uh, hope you've enjoyed this episode for a slight change of pace and certainly a, uh, a look further up the table, albeit only slightly further up the table. We did record a, a bonus episode, the starter to this main course, if you will, uh, and that's about Enzo Fernandez and his fit at Chelsea. Basically, what sort of player is he? Liam and Mark know, uh, and they told me about that. So go back on the feed and check it out if you haven't already and sign up to The Athletic 
theathletic.com forward slash tactics is the best place for you to go to do that. You'll pay £1.99 a month for the first 12 months of your annual subscription. Thanks for listening to us. Make sure that you do so again next week by subscribing to this podcast feed. We've been the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. Thanks for listening. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.